We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Okay, welcome everyone. Hello all. Tracy is definitely the loudest, isn't she? (laughs) Okay, right. So last week I spoke about identity and we were talking about our culture's approach to identity. The culture that we live in tells you to reach inside yourself, see what you discover, pull it out and then wear it in front of all the world. Whereas a biblical prescription of how we get our our identity is by seeing what does God say, the great I am. I am who I am says I am. So when you start to... So during this week I've been thinking, in fact, actually, I might have lots of ideas of who I am. He's, He's got more. And... He's definitely, he's definitely thought about it a little bit. So if we look at Psalm 139, it says, For you created my innermost parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in the secret place and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts for me, God. How vast are the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I wake, you are still with me. Now, what you get in that passage there is a very clear sense of he has been intimately involved in my formation. He thought me up. He designed me. He knows me better than I know myself. Before a single day of my life happened, he'd written about it in his book. He was there before I was even conscious. And so when we're talking about going to him to tell us who we are, he's an expert on us, more so than we are. But I just wanted to hone in on this idea of his thoughts for us outnumber the grains of sand. He thinks of me, he's got more thoughts for me than there are grains of sand. Now, any idea... How many grains of sand there might be? Five or six? Seven? Well, the University of Hawaii, I do feel I'm knocking universities most of the time while I'm up here, but the University of Hawaii set the question of how many grains of sand are there on the world's beaches? There's no other problems that we want solved in the world. So, They went about this by getting a spoon 
with sand on it, and then they subdivided that into lots of different sections, and then they counted every grain of sand that was in one section, multiplied by the number of sections they've got. They've got how many uh, grains of sand are on a spoon, how many, grains of, how many spoons would it take to cover a square meter, and then worked out how many square meters for all of the beaches. They came up with this number. Seven quint quintillion, quintillion, quint yeah, five hundred quadrillion. That's a lot of O's. Yeah. But this was just sand that covered covered the world's beaches. If you think sand doesn't just sit on the top, it goes deep on the beach. You can dig sand up and you're still finding sand underneath. Unless you go to South End where you find like excess diesel fuel and stuff like that on there. <laughs> but even under the sea, there's an awful lot of sand as well. But then there's places like this, the Sahara Desert, that covers a whole chunk of North Africa. That's just one desert. He has more thoughts for me than grains of sand. He has more thoughts for me than grains of sand. I don't know how to process that. I don't know how to think about that. Particularly when you consider one grain of sand, one of his thoughts could take you five lifetimes to figure out what that actually means. What are the implications of that truth? How that one thought that he has could set us free? It takes faith to believe what he says over what I feel. So after the last session, one of the young people left me with this question. Okay, all right, so how do I accept my God-given identity. I'm, I'm convinced that he's got an identity for me. I'm convinced it's better for me, but how do you even go through the process? So I met with some of the youth on Friday and came up with some ideas. And so, first of all, what we said was, we need to know what he says about us. So we've got to learn. That's the first step. If you want to be able to apply God's identity to you, you've got to first know what it is. And so I, I asked them the question, what could you do to know what his identity is for you? So one minute, person next to you, what could you do? Okay, throw me some answers. What could we do? What could we do? Ask him. Ask him. Yeah. Pray. God, reveal to me 
who you call me to be. What else could we do? Read his word, okay? And we can read the Bible. It's not the only way to get the Bible into you. You can listen to podcasts. You can watch Bible Project videos. You can sit around and talk with people. That was how the Bible was first studied, was groups of people sitting around discussing, talking about it. Yeah? How about the idea of... You remember what we talked about last time? I'm made in the image of God. The more I look at him the more it reflects who I am. So, worshipping, studying him, looking at him are different ways. Finding someone more mature than you, asking them questions. Who do you think God says you are? How have you allowed that to affect the way that you think and you act? Have you ever found that you fall short of what you think is the right thing to do? What do you do if you don't believe it? What if it doesn't stay as the most, uh, the most real truth about you and how you feel seems truer. What do you do? Those are good questions to be asking to engage yourself with it. The second thing we need to do to accept my God-given identity is we need to give what he says priority over what I feel. Now that's a huge challenge for us, but it is a choice. I was thinking, all right, practically, how do we choose that? All I can say is, God... I'm choosing to believe your way. Help me fulfill that choice. Help me stick with that choice. I think that's often where we get stuck, is the choice. And finally, we need to live as, as if what God says about us is true, even if we don't feel it or see it. And this is the acting part. We've got to actually make some steps towards it. So that might be things about, you know what, I find that when, when I've done something that I'm proud of, I want to promote it on my social media. Well, okay, if I know that that's not where I find my identity, that's not what he says about me, I'm going to resist posting something on my social media like that. That's part of me stepping into the identity that God's given me. I'm not waiting for me to feel different. I'm doing what I believe God has given me to do, what I know is right. Here's a little video that we did. I played for the youth on Friday, but we did it a while back, just to see how this kind of stuff works out. Imagine you're a street child. You live on the street. You sleep in shop doorways and eat only what you steal from the marketplace. You have no family. Your clothes are old, dirty, and torn. One day, someone comes to you and says, you're the son of the king. You are sceptical and dismissive. You say, look at me. I live on the street. I'm barely surviving hand to mouth. This person then pulls an official looking document out. They announce, here is your birth certificate. See, it proves you have royal blood. You now have a choice. You can conclude, I don't feel like a prince. I don't taste like a prince. I don't sound like a prince, I don't smell like a prince, and I don't look like a prince. You can trust your feelings and continue to live like a street child, or you can trust your sixth sense, your ability to sense a deeper reality, to trust in the official evidence provided 
by a higher authority than your feelings. It's a risk either way, but you decide to trust your sixth sense. But this decision would be worthless if you don't make a change. What is the point of being a prince if you continue to live on the street? Therefore, you go through a life-changing makeover. You clean up, you trade your rags for robes, you move into the palace, you spend from the royal treasury, you command people, and you feast and relate to the king, your father. There is a process of learning to step into your true identity. At what point did you become a prince? Was it when you saw the evidence? No. You've been a prince since birth, but the revelation happened much later. The key question is, how will you respond to your revelation? So, you see there, we learn, we choose, we act. Now, what I wanted to do for the rest of this morning is have a look at one other grain of sand. And that grain that I want to talk about is the fact that you are a child of God. We started with that song this morning. And I want us to have a little look through what are the implications of this and what, what does it look like? So, first of all, let's look at some of the, the evidence. Let's, let's learn. So, it says in 1 John 3, 1, See what a great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become Children of God. For you are all sons of God through the faith of Christ Jesus. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. For all who are being, brought, who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He says it. Time and time again, the whole concept of us being child, children of God is in Scripture. So uh, what I do, I, I find it quite helpful then to think of what is the opposite to a child? And so I did this study a while ago looking at the difference between sonship and orphanhood. And then I'm going to use a character study in the Bible. We're going to look at David representing sonship and Saul who represents orphanhood. And we're going to look at three particular uh, elements that draws this out. The first thing is, how do they respond to challenges which could induce fear, could, could make them scared or insecure? We're going to look at what are they prepared to fight for, what, what is meaningful to them, and how they fight, the method, the style... Um, how they go about doing it. And I'm hoping that as we kind of go through this study, we begin to draw out, oh, okay, so here's symptoms of sonship or, or being a child of God. These are symptoms of being an orphan. Which am I operating in? I've got an invitation to step out. 
So there's a lot of story that we've got to try and get through. So I've tried my hardest to draw out the key bits. But we're going to start with the first bit. So responding to challenges which could induce fear. Both of these guys, David and Saul, had plenty of opportunity to be afraid of something. So at this point in the story, David has been anointed in a private ceremony by Samuel the prophet. No one else knows what's, what's happened. David's brothers know, because they were there at the time. David was the young one that was tending the sheep. When Samuel came, he was told to go and anoint a son of Jesse, which was David's father. He went through the whole of the sons, and each time, it's like, no, this isn't the one, this isn't the one, this isn't the one. And so uh, Samuel says to, David, to Jesse, do you not have any other sons? And Jesse said, oh, well, there is, is the youngest, but he's out tending sheep. Okay, so first of all, his father didn't believe in him. The next chapter is just before the, the big fight with Goliath. And so Goliath is coming out and taunting the armies of, of God. David is sent with packed lunch for his brothers and a selection of cheeses for the officers, which is lovely. Um, and so David comes, arrives at the battlefield with his packed lunch at the same time that Goliath comes out and starts taunting um, the Israelite army. And David starts asking the question, what, why are we allowing this guy to get away with this? What, what would be done for him? Now, David's brother, who's in the army, reacts angrily to David's questions. And he says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came here, you came down only to watch the battle. Okay, he's made a, he's made a decision what's going on for, for David. They're like all younger brothers, he responds in a very good way. Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? <laughs> David was could have been intimidated by his brother's reaction. He could have in, been intimidated by the accusation that his brother brought to him. But he doesn't. He then turns around and then asks someone else the answer to this question that his brother didn't answer. Next up, David goes to King Saul and says, I'll fight that giant for you. King Saul's response was, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Okay, you've got the, the highest authority in your country saying, you ain't got what it takes, David. He, he will crush you. That could make us feel a little bit scared. David's response was, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. David has a track record well, God has a track record for David in how he's rescued him in the past when he's been looking after the sheep. He's fought off wild beasts. Another point that could induce a little bit of fear in you is facing Goliath himself. Goliath's reaction was, come here, I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. He could just, he could swallow the guy. He could just crush him. David's response was, you come against me with a sword and a spear and javelin, 
but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. So, David's reasons for fear. Goliath, the size, the experience, the reputation, the armor of Goliath. That's pretty scary. And the idea that fear can be contagious. You've just stood around all of the warriors of your country who are quaking in their boots. You have talked to Saul, who's out of ideas and doesn't know what to do next because fear has paralyzed him. Fear could be contagious. It could come upon you, what others are showing. He was under-equipped. He didn't have the training, the experience. He didn't even have the armor. He tried to... Saul tried to dress him in his arm, and that didn't work. So he's going out there with a slingshot. The doubts of others, his brother, the king, Goliath, even his own father has doubted him. That can make us feel fearful. Also, the consequence of failure. If David loses this battle, the agreement is they've lost the war with the Philistines. So how does David respond to this? Well, we see. He didn't compare himself to Goliath. He compared Goliath to his God. He remembered God's track record in helping him in the past with the lions and the bears. He ignored the discouragement that came. And he set his sights on God's honor being more important than his own well-being and safety. Right, now store that away. Let's have a little look at Saul. Right, Saul had some reasons to be afraid. So after David had killed Goliath, brought about a great victory. And then David started actually leading some of the troops out in other battles. Whenever, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was successful. And so Saul gave him a higher rank in the army. And this pleased all of the troops and all the officers. Okay, so you've got to be worried when someone that you consider to be a threat now has the support of your military. And when they were returning home from a particular campaign, the women came out and they started singing this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is pretty scary if you're thinking that, uh-oh, The tide is turning towards this other guy. They're recognizing him as better than me. He can get more than me. How does Saul respond to that? Well, he starts having this this thought. What more can he get but the kingdom? And it says, from that time on, Saul kept an eye on David. Becomes obsessed, focused on the threat that's there. Another thing he does is, Lobs a spear at him. I mean, if the other thoughts were inside his head, that was definitely expressed. He hurled a spear at him, but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So, Saul's got reasons to be afraid as well. His reaction is quite different. So he feared losing his kingdom. He felt he was going, with that, he'd lose his significance, that he'd lose his favor of God, that he'd lose the love of the people. 
that he would lose his power to achieve what, what he wanted. And he was fearful of being replaced. How did he respond to that? He relied on his own ability to secure himself when he felt insecure by lobbing a spear in this case. He gave in to fear and jealousy and anger. He let it consume him and, uh, and he became obsessed. He would lash out. His eyes were focused on his threat. Whereas David's eyes was focused on God's honour, Saul couldn't do that because he was constantly looking at his threat. And he prioritised others' opinions all of the time. Okay, so what were they prepared to fight for? Well, we get, get it clearly from David when he's saying, I want the whole world to know that there is a, a God in Israel. That was his focus. It wasn't his own fame and fortune. It was God's fame and honour. There are a number of times in that chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, where the story is, where David says, he's defying the living God. Three times he says that. That bothers him. God's name was being undermined by Goliath doing what he was doing. Whereas we see with Saul's reaction, his, his, the thing that he's prepared to fight for is his own fame and honour, his own security, his own kingdom. So how about the method of how they fight? Well, when David comes into battle, he's remembering being able to defeat the lions and the bears by the power of God. And he says, it's the Lord that saves, for the battle is the Lord. He will give you into our hands. So his focus is what God can do, what God has done and what God can do. He sees God as his protector. Later on in the story of, of David, his own son, Absalom, seeks to overthrow him. And David chooses to walk out of the kingdom rather than trying to fight to defend it. His attitude was always, if God has put me here, if God has put me on my throne... He can restore me if he chooses. He recognised that God is his provider. God will look after him. God will make sure that he gets what he needs. And so if David's taken a position that God is my provider, God is my protector, he's also taken the position that he is not his own provider and not his own protector. And we see that in the story of David. There's one point where Saul is actually hunting him, where he's hiding in the cave. Saul comes in to relieve himself into the very cave that David and his men are hiding. David's men are whispering to David, here's your chance, you could kill him and be done with this. He's killing you because he's insecure. He's not even recognising that you should be the king. He's done all of these things that are wrong. Here's your chance. God's delivered him on a silver platter for you. David's reaction was, I'm going to cut this, this piece of his robe off to be able to show him that I mean him no harm because I will not lay a hand on God's anointed. I don't want to step in here and grab for myself, provide for myself, protect myself 
because I am completely committed that God is my provider and my protector. He has another opportunity later when David sneaks into the camp, where, uh, into Saul's camp, where camp's sleeping with all of his soldiers around, and he's able to take his spear and I think a water bottle from, from next to him. And he says, look, I could have killed you again and I've chosen not to do it. The man that was with him was saying, let me just, let, let me strike him with my spear. I'll only do it once. <laughs> I can skewer him like a kebab. And he said, no, we won't touch the Lord's anointed. That was just absolute commitment that God is the one that will protect me and look after me. Doesn't mean that sometimes God doesn't call you into battle. David did lots of other battles. But his position was, it's God that protects me, God that provides for me. We see that when he did, when he did um, leave the kingdom, when Absalom was attacking, and the, the high priests brought the ark out, which represented the presence of God. And David sent it back, in, back into Jerusalem, into the capital, because he said, I'm not going to use God to protect me. God, he can look after me if he chooses to use, uh, look after me, but I'm not going to use him for my purposes very different to what we see happening earlier in, in Samuel, where some of the high priests actually took the ark out for battle and lost it. He learned to dodge spears, and he didn't fight back. And he chose not to put on the armor that Saul was trying to get him to put on to fight Goliath. Didn't trust in the armor. He trusted in his Lord to be his provider and protector. Now let's look at Saul. Saul's response, keep an eye on David. Kind of watch him. Every step that he makes. Saul would learn to throw spears, lash out with his anger, try and eliminate the voice that he didn't like. And there's a bit where he starts using David in battle. And he's sending him out for one battle after another battle. And he says, um, he thinks to himself, you know what, I don't even need to kill David. I'll just send him into these ridiculously, ridiculously tough battles and the Philistines will do it for me. And then when he realized that his that Saul realized that his daughter was in love with David, he thought, ah, I can, I can use my daughter to be the thing that undermines David. He actually says, if you want my daughter's hand in marriage, you need to get me the foreskin of a hundred Philistines. I don't know if any of you guys have ever got wedding presents. <laughs> That's not one that I would advise. But um, his attitude was, I will give him to her that she may be a snare to him. That was his hope. So, let's look. The methods, how they, how they, how they fought. David, and we're saying David rep representing sonship. His position, God was his provider and protector. Which meant he refused to take matters into his own hands. Whereas we see Saul, he would snatch, grab, hoard, steal, threaten, manipulate. He was a master of the dark arts. 
the way that he approached battle was, it was all about his ability to perform and produce the results that he wanted. So now let's just summarize this quick study. And looking back in terms of sonship, first of all, we see the idea of identity. A son is made in the image of their father. Their identity is informed by who their father is. Whereas an orphan, what can I forge for myself? What name can I make for myself? They've got a confused sense of identity, always kind of not being at peace with whatever they try from one thing to another. When it comes to provision and protection, a son knows that his father is the provider and protector. He sees that God has won his battles, so he's not proud about it, he's thankful. And he sees that he'll win his future battles, so he's not anxious. He sees with hope that if God's here, if God's if, if I, ex- I, I expect to see the, the, the hand of the Lord in the land of the living changes my outlook for the future. Constantly thinking back to what God has done for him in the past. Whereas an orphan, they can only have whatever they can snatch, grab, hoard, steal, manipulate, play dirty to get. Why do we lie? We lie to protect or to provide for ourselves. Being a master of the the dark arts, we have a tendency to nag others, to coerce them, to push them to get what we want. I heard a quote by Mary Woolen Stonecraft, I think if I've pronounced it right. Wool Stonecraft? She said... Convince a man against his will, he's of the same opinion still. How much do we try and win an argument? Can an argument even be won? If if you're relying on your ability to get others to do what you want for your provision and your protection, you have entered into Saul's dark arts of the orphan. But when I'm a son... I trust that he will be able to to get me what I need to have. As an orphan, my quality of life depends on my ability to grab and defend my time, my energy, my money, my reputation. I had a word come through to the the leadership team about that being tight-fisted. You ever feel that threat that someone's after something from you, like, you're not going to get it, or I'm going to have to defend this from you? Well, I don't have to live like that if I know that he is my provider and my protector. I don't have to be fearful or jealous or isolated or live in my insecurity watching over my shoulder all the time. What matters most? My father's reputation is of the utmost importance. I seek first the kingdom of God. As an orphan, what matters most? My needs are priority. 
A son has an inheritance. They see the position in the context of their father. All Christ has paid everything for us. We are an we will inherit with Him. You ever think of the, the story of the um, the prodigal son? I've seen it said it was actually two prodigal sons. One just never left home. And we have the ultimate brother in Christ who was willing to share his inheritance with us. He has shared his inheritance with us. We inherit what Christ inherits because we have the same father. Whereas an orphan has no inheritance, no expectation that there's anything that is being given to them is all what you can take for yourself. So, how about you? What situations are, you, are likely to cause you fear and insecurity? Just take a second, close your eyes and think for a second. What's likely to cause you fear and insecurity? Could be performance, if I don't achieve this, if this person thinks this of me, if this relationship falls apart, what is it that causes you, causes your heart to start racing? How do you react to that? Do you compare the size of your problem to yourself or do you compare it to the size of God? Do you remember his track record in your life? Are you able to ignore discouragement and put a priority on God's honor? Or do you rely on your ability and you give in to fear, jealousy, anger, you lash out, you become obsessed with your threat? What are you likely to fight to protect? Is it your father's fame and honor or your own? And what would it look like to fight for this? When you feel under attack, how do you respond? Do you trust God to be your provider and your protector? Or will you snatch, grab, hoard, steal, threaten, manipulate? The truth is, that grain of sand, that thought that he has for you, you are a child of God. The evidence has been presented. Will you choose to believe it? Will you choose to act upon it? So, you might have your own response. Here's a couple of options for you. You might be saying today, you know what? I've, got a, I've never made, Lord, uh, made Jesus the Lord of my life. I've never decided that what he thinks matters more than anything else. I've never lived to please him. I want to make that choice today. For others, it might be, you know what? I'm going to choose to believe I am a child of God today and I'm going to start acting accordingly. But Holy Spirit, you've got to help me because this isn't about trying harder. 
This is about the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live accordingly. The work of the Holy Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us everything that Jesus teaches us. We weren't designed to operate without the Holy Spirit. Don't leave here trying harder because that is exactly an orphan mentality. What you can achieve for yourself. This is about trusting what God can do and allowing him to help you live according to your true identity. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at lifelineuk.com.